You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole, coming at you live from Navarro. Guys, just just be careful. It's molten lava. Hmm. <laughs> well, just just wanted to warn you. <laughs> I was going to offer you a libation to celebrate the closing of our shared narrative. Ooh, ooh that would have been delicious. Mm, I'll take a uh, I'll take a scotch neat. So there you go. <laughs> I'm just going to go over here and call the local moth. I'll be back with you in just a moment. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, great. Uh, I was hoping he would show up. Oh, man. I, can, I, can we just say how great? I'm, I'm going to start having to use that line. Can I offer you a libation? Like, mm-hmm. it just sounds so dirty, but it isn't. Like, it's not at all, but it's just such a strange word to use, honestly. So... Anyway, we're going to be talking about the entire season of The Mandalorian. It's first season. We're excited to be able to do that. Pretty sure that if you're listening to the show, you already picked that up from what we were just talking about. But we just want to say a huge thank you to listening. Uh, find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed there so you can get the podcast as soon as it drops. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do give us a star rating and review and uh, so we can read that on the show. Plus, it helps the show grow, you know? Like, it's crazy. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, this might be the sixth year this podcast has been going. I can't remember. It's been a long time. So. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so thank you everybody for listening and, and staying with us. Uh, and if you just found us today, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, at TrekFM, Facebook. We're on Facebook.com, at slash TrekFM. And uh, we've got a listeners-only discussion group over there on Facebook, too. It's called the Babel Conference, and you can find that over there on Facebook by tapping Babel into the search field. And uh, then last but not least, uh, go over to Trek.FM. You can find out all the podcasts we're doing here on the network. Plus, uh, you can go to the contact section, and you can send Christy and I an email if you'd like. We love getting emails from listeners. And last but not least, huge thank you to our associate producers here um, through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. Um, we do appreciate their support here on the show. Um, it is an expensive enterprise to put everything we do here on Trek FM out every single week. And so um, we have a Patreon where you can support us and make sure all this quality content comes to you ad-free except for this ad right here for Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of our team. We've got some great contribution levels that have some extra perks, but honestly, guys, every little bit helps. Um, And so the more people supporting us, the more we can keep this quality content coming to you. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. So we talked about the first two episodes already um so there's a lot of things that i don't feel like we kind of need to do with like the setup and everything um i wanted to kind of dive right into this with you guys and talk about this mandalorian character that we get here um as we learn his name is din Djarin, 
And so I wanted to ask you guys straight up front, we're just going to dive right into it, about his character arc and story throughout this season and the things that we learn about this character. Um, and, you know, he's our the character we're following. You know, he's he's kind of the eyes we see everything through. So how did this end up working for both of you as, you know, we've finally gotten through this first season and we've, we've you know, had a lot of questions answered, even though there are still a lot of questions out there. So if, for me, I feel like, first of all, in general with this season, there were not many drawbacks. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, um, but it, it was hard to find some flaws with it. I mean, why would you? But I, I felt like the Mandalorian, um, in particular, the thing I noticed the most was the absolute refusal of him to remove his helmet um, and then them further explaining it in the story in the dialogue having the other characters say has anyone ever taken it off for you and you know making it that this is part of their culture as Mandalorians is that you just don't remove your helmet at this point in the Mandalorian culture and um, you know if you did it would only be alone so I, I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it and something that we didn't really see when we saw Mandalorians in Rebels or Clone Wars. I also really loved the jetpacks being back. Uh, I, I flipped out about that with episode three, and I think Deborah Chow is now my favorite director of any of the episodes. Yeah, uh, Deborah Chow's episodes were standouts among a terrific season. Uh, I... In terms of the Mandalorian, the character himself, I think that one of the things that impressed me the most is that um, a lot of people, uh, and you know, you see this happen with um, animated shows as well, a lot of people underestimate the real skill necessary with uh, uh, vocal acting. Uh, you know, we don't have facial expressions to go with the Mandalorian. Uh, all we have are movement and vocal inflection. And so the vocal inflection has been great. You, you, you know what he's thinking in the way that he is saying what he says, but also the very minor um, physical tics that he has, uh, you know, when they're negotiating with the Jawas at one point. And uh, uh, it's not negotiating. It's after he's brought the egg back and the Jawas are celebrating. He does just this very almost imperceptible shake of the head. And it says everything you need in that moment of, I went through all this for that. Uh, okay. You know, and it, it, it comes across. It all comes across in there. And what I've especially appreciated is they've used that very essence of how the character communicates to move him along incrementally in such a way that it doesn't feel like stretching it out and it doesn't feel like a cheat. It feels like this is a person who literally has armor up and doesn't share himself with the world and so getting him to open up is a journey in and of itself. And I think that's been, well, you know, one of the most interesting things is you, you see him actually grow uh, in, the, in the course of this season, but not so much that there's nothing left to look forward to. He's just started his journey, and you can see that learning starting to take root by the, uh, the last episode. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's one of the things that kind of shocked me about the season is that, you know, we start off with this guy in the first episode who, you know, he's like, I'll, I'll bring you in warm. I'll bring you in cold. It's up to you, you know, and he seems very businesslike. He's, he's very cold. And there's something that kind of rocks his world at the beginning of the, or at the end of that episode that leads him down a, a very different path. than I think he probably ever thought he would be on. And, you know, part of this journey, too, is about his backstory and kind of what has made him who he is. And and so them kind of showing that, you know, his parents are lost in the Clone Wars. It explains why he hates droids so much. Um, and then getting this opportunity to, to see um, that he himself, of course, is a foundling, you know, and brought into the Mandalorian culture and... Also seeing that, you know, especially episode six fills in a lot of detail about his his backstory, which is, you know, he was not always a good guy. You know, he he was a guy who kind of seemed to take joy in bringing people in cold, you know, um, and um, using that ability to, to be able to kill somebody um, maybe more than necessary, you know, <laughs> and so. Um, we, we really see a guy who who is making a completely new version of himself. But like you said, John, there's this representation of he is wearing that armor. I like the way you put it, that that armor is a part of him emotionally as well. And by the end of the season, you know, we see him being a character who was somebody who hated droids, but now has feeling that a droid is dying. And, you know, that's such a great arc. Like, and there's a lot of little parts of his story that happen like that, that I was just, I was really impressed with the way that, you know, through eight episodes, they're able to bring this guy from one point to another. But like you said, John, you know, there's still so much more for this character to go through. And, and, and obviously, um, I think, a big part of that too has to do with the fact that we also watch him move from being a guy who's a loner to by the end of the episode, when Cara Dune says that she's going to stay on Navarro, he's like, Oh, you're going to stay here. Like you get the feeling like he was hoping she would come with him, you know? And that's Mm -hmm. a difference as well. Um, So I just, I think they've done a fantastic job of creating this main character who it's amazing that, you don't see his face, but that never really bothers me, you know, mm-hmm. because I feel like I know this character. And like you said, John, that comes down to the vocal performance and that comes down to the performance that's being given by him and his, you know, stunt double really making this work. Well, and, and something that you both um, addressed is uh, what well, or gets to something that I that I think needs to be appreciated about this is um the the character arc of these eight episodes this is the type of stuff that nowadays they're i'm accustomed to people cramming into 42 minutes you know by the end of the first episode you'd have found out everything about his backstory um he'd have made peace with droids and he would have learned to let uh, baby yoda into his heart whereas it is much more of a journey um through this and i think that makes everything feel much more earned uh, that you know that all three of us are talking about like it feels so much more earned 
and justified by the end of that last episode for the season. That's an excellent point, actually, John, because I feel like that's something I I feel throughout this whole season as well, that it's the kind of show where you can really tell that the writer, writers and directors are taking their time, that each episode is spent much more on slow panning across scenery or um, expressions and music and much more visual than it is to trying to cram a bunch into one episode. And I think that that's, that's something that you can tell is really intentional, intentional about the entire first season. And I hope continues. Yeah. Same. Well, and that's, I think, you know, even just using that with the Mandalorian story, it's one of those things where each episode does the job that it needs to do but it doesn't try to do too much or too little. It's doing just the right amount to continue to further along his story as well as, you know, the rest of the story that's playing out in this season with everything else that's going on. And I thought one of the ways that, you know, made this so smart, you know, I think, you know, obviously for everyone, we were just kind of blown away that we've got this child that nobody saw coming in that first episode. But what makes it so interesting is that the, we have that parallel with him as a child being a foundling. And the reason, like we come to find out that the reason that this child has the impact on him that it does is because I, I think the moment he sees, you know, this child, he immediately is faced with that same picture of what his life was like. Like when we see him first meet a Mandalorian, he's looking up at the Mandalorian being saved, right? And that's exactly the picture we get in in that very first episode when, you know, the colloquial term Baby Yoda is looking up at this Mandalorian hoping he's being saved. And that they both kind of find their clan. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's what makes that part of the story so smart. It's like Baby Yoda is not some sort of like throw away or just this cuteness or whatever. No, it's actually really giving us an insight into who the Mandalorian is as a character and what his past was. Um, And it's also helping inform then where his future is going to go as, you know, we end season one and his story is moving towards him being on the hunt now for this child's clan, which, you know, as the armorer talks about, is these, you know, sorcerers, these Jedi. Um, and so who in the world he'll run into? I don't know, maybe Ahsoka? I'm saying it could, could be a good thing. <laughs> um, but, like, just the fact that we're on that search now is so fascinating, and it's kind of combining a bunch of different things in Star Wars, which is just so fun, like... Um, you know, the fact that we spent most of the season with the Mandalorian and the bounty hunters and everything, and now we're on kind of a new mission, which is, you know, to find who this child should be with is fascinating. Yeah. And, and, um, I think something, uh, that you get at there too, is that this world building that has happened, um, is so incredibly rich in the sense that, we have a full picture of the galaxy that they're going into, what the state of it is. And, you know, with lines of dialogue about 
how much chaos there is. Is the world really better without an empire? Like you, you start to hear those seductive sorts of arguments that are going to plant the seeds for, say, for instance, the first order coming up or for people not, you know, jumping on the train to believe that the Jedi can do everything for them and stuff like that. And sort of like present, but it presents this much more um, rich uh, image of the world that they're living in. And it gives you a sense. I think the re- one of the reasons, besides the fact that, you know, and I'm just going to call him Baby Yoda. I know it's the child, but Baby Yoda. All right. It's mm-hmm. Baby Yoda. Um, I think the reason that so many of us have stayed in love with Baby Yoda isn't just the cuteness, but we see the world around him. And it triggers that very primal thing down in our little lizard brains of fear for children. What type of world are you coming into? How can I protect you? How can I prepare you? And I think that is that is something that is a masterstroke in terms of getting us all invested in their search, in their journey. Because all we want is what the Mandalorian wants at this point, which is get this kid home and safe and protect him from the world. And that's, you know, I think that's a big, big thing. Absolutely. And and it feels like without that, you think about that's something that is a common thread with most people is mercy and with, you know, feeling for those that are not as capable as someone else. And so it's it definitely pulls more on your emotions, I think, to have the child and have that parallel with the Mandalorian's story than it would if it was just him. Mm-hmm. I Absolutely. like what you said there, John, about the child, because I had not thought about that idea, honestly, until you put it into words that, you know, the thing about them is is that they are this innocent thing and how then do we respond to the most innocent among us that needs help you know and do we respond with callousness or do we respond with you know uh, immediately doing all we can to make sure that they're safe and you know what i think is interesting is what we see um, for the the Mandalorian culture is that they have taken on this this um, this value of not just protecting themselves, but they they will do what they can to protect others as well. And I think you know the child is a representation then of of that um, that honor bound um, culture, truly understanding the importance of children. Um, and, you know, it, the armorer says something about existence, you know, that them by them staying hidden, they exist. And that is that is what keeps them um, uh, from, you know, passing away into, you know, just legend and myth. And so, you know, we really see this play out and the importance then of, of children and passing that on. And so the baby Yoda is is a, a a part of that, you know, and I think there's something really special about that because, like you said, it's a scary world we live in, and so to to kind of play out this this thematic element, man, that's that's just something I hadn't thought of. And it speaks to something that goes back to you know one of the major themes in the original six, well, actually all of the Skywalker saga, not just the original six, but you know that your family isn't just blood Mm -hmm. uh but then on top of that like well 
you know, while we're sitting here discussing something that I, you know, I, I apologize if I'm pulling us down a rabbit hole or something, but like one of the things that um, I think is equally fascinating, uh, perhaps even more so with all of these things we're talking about with Mandalorian culture is this is very accessible to somebody who hasn't stayed up with everything. But for those of us who have just thinking about the evolution of the Mandalorian culture, we've seen through the the span of these episodes, not just these episodes, but all of these series, the time we spent with them, you know, with Satine and Death Watch, and we're going to see them on the Siege of Mandalore. We've seen them in Rebels. We know the importance of the Darksaber, all of these sorts of things. But what it all comes down to is that we see the Mandalorians sort of ennobled in a way that is uh, fresh and unexpected because... I mean, it's something that I've always found interesting about the prequels is I got tired of the cult of Boba Fett, and then the prequels made Boba Fett cool again by way of Jango Fett, and then the Mandalorians and finding out everything about them. It's so fascinating to me that this all literally starts just with the armor, and the armor continues as an important part of it, but that armor has come to represent something completely different with each iteration that we've seen, and I think that's... That's an incredibly cool aspect of this, too, is, is the culture itself and how much it's evolved. Yeah, I mean, because it started there from the very beginning of it, the whole reason that Boba Fett was cool was because of the, the style of the armor and having the jetpack and stuff like that. And, and yeah, I mean, it's completely changed from, you know, from seeing Django to now having been through those of us that have watched the animation and now in the Mandalorian, I really love how they've made it um, more to about what the armor is made of, that it, it turned mm-hmm. now to talking about the Beskar and how different that is from the regular run-of-the-mill stuff you might find. Um, and I love that they've brought in the Darksaber, which I know we'll get to later, but um, it, I like that you said that too, John, about how accessible it is to both sides of fans as well people that have seen the dark saber before and then people who have no idea what the hell that is <laughs> right it's just a neat thing it's just like wait what yeah. is that and it's you know it, it always it feels great because it, you know it becomes the type of thing where you know they used to have those ads where it's like to learn more about this visit your local library <laughs> and in, in this case it's you know visit your local star wars fan and it's like oh yes i'll tell you all about these yeah. episodes and explain that cool thing that you saw and i don't think they've mentioned um signets before with mandalorians until now no i think you're right yeah not I, in this way no i don't yeah. think so you know because beforehand i think you know we obviously knew boba fett you know had the mythosaur and and you know death watch had its own symbol but i don't think we've ever really gotten to you know the symbols you know because even with sabine um hers seemed to be more artistic than necessarily mm-hmm. representational that we know of at this point. So, you know, I, I right there with you, John, I you know, the thing that blew me away here too is in and we kind of talked about this a little bit on aggressive negotiations of the way that the Mandalorian culture has continued to evolve and we've continued to learn new things about them. And the way that this kind of initiated just a whole new age of the Mandalorian that somewhere along the line it has gone from what we saw in Rebels to being a culture which, you know, not only accepts those that are not birthed on Mandalore, 
um, but a culture who is all about hiding themselves, which is, you know, you stay under the armor. You do not remove your helmet in front of which, I mean, I guess I just have to ask how <laughs> awkward that makes Mandalorian sex. I'm just saying it's, it seems kind of weird. Um, <laughs> there's got to be a rule, right, about that. You know, if your significant other, please tell me that's a thing. Um, Blindfolds. Yeah. That's how you I, do it. I don't know. It's anyway, um, so it, it is a question that I had. But it seemed so maybe they'll answer that sometime. But, um, you know, we, we obviously in this episode, uh, throughout these episodes, you know, we get this covert who's hidden. And we get we we hear that you know only a few Mandalorians kind of pop up around the galaxy at a time, so people don't know how many there are. Um, we learn about you know this midnight uh, this night of a thousand tears where Mandalorians were just mowed down by the Empire because uh, you know apparently they would not accept the offer of imperial rule, and you know then we have this character who's like the mother bear of the Mandalorians and the armorer who also just happens to kick some serious stormtrooper butt like Mm -hmm. maybe one of the most brutal scenes I've ever seen in Star Wars uh, is when Mm. she beats the snot out of all of those stormtroopers and like she's literally breaking helmets she's swinging so hard like those are that i think the thing that this show is doing is it is giving us like so many things to get excited about with this culture and part of it is like everybody's talking about like oh well that's a plot hole there because they take their hand it's like what this is is this the setup for the story it it's like in star wars right the original movie when they say the clone wars we don't know what that is But just Mm -hmm. because we don't know what it is doesn't mean there's some plot hole there. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the same thing. Like, there's a period of history that we don't know much about Mandalorians yet, and this will probably start to fill those in. And so all of those things just make me so excited when it comes to Mandalorian culture. Can we please talk about how that scene that you're mentioning, Matt, is such the epitome of a samurai movie scene? Because she is crouched (laughs) on the floor, silent and waiting for them to strike first, and then she just blows up. It was I- incredible. And and I, I will say that these stormtroopers make the classic villain mistake of forgetting that their weapons are intended to be ranged weapons uh, and not close quarters combat <laughs> weapons. You stay outside the doorway, dummy. You don't poke somebody who's sitting there that can kick your butt. You stay far away. You say, I have a gun. I'm I'm far enough away that you can't swing that hammer at me. <laughs> um, you know, but it, <laughs> yeah, that, that scene is... Um, is something else, and it's a uh, it's it's a real treat actually to um, see these sorts of things unfold. But you know, also with with um, I, th- I think that what you were saying, Matt, about people claiming, oh, this is a plot hole, oh, this is different than I saw before, oh, yeah, you just don't know the story that happened in between. And I think it's very telling that we're sort of inculcated, and I think this gets back to the fact that it takes its time telling the story and developing the characters we're used to what i've come to term term the uh the plot point fire hose if you don't explain it immediately people get impatient now and it's 
it's almost like this this um, is an opportunity for everybody to take a breath and just relax and say, okay, you know what? I like what I'm seeing. I'm going to trust the creators of this show to explain things and just go with them as opposed to trying to force everything you know, in shorthand. And I think a lot of times that will wind up playing into um, disappointment that some people can feel with these sorts of series or movies or what have you is they get so impatient about having plot points just fed to them. I mean, you know, I, I've made the joke on occasion with Marvel movies that there are some people where they don't, they pay you the full ticket price if you just gave them like a 10 minute uh, version of the movie just so they would know everything to keep up with. Like it doesn't even matter to them the point A to B to C to D. They just want to get to the conclusion. And it's, I, I hope that this becomes a moment for all of us to sort of just go with the flow and just learn to trust uh, the directors and the writers and the actors uh, and the creators of this piece of art to get us where we need to go for everything to work. That we're playing the long game. Sorry. Don't be sorry. Yeah. That You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> well, no, I think you're right, John, because it, what it what this whole season shows, honestly, is that they have a plan, you know, and, and again, part of that has to do with even the length of the episodes that we get in the season and the fact that they're not, they don't feel any desire to just stretch things out if it doesn't actually need to be in the episode. Um, mm -hmm. You know, no episode is longer than it need be, um, just so we can fill a time quota. There are not more episodes in the season than need be, so you don't really feel like, you You know, John, you and I have talked through, and Christy, you too, we talked through some of the Marvel TV shows uh, from Netflix, and almost every single one of those, you could cut out at least two episodes in the in the season length, and it would have been a better season because they would have had to like condense some things. And and that's kind of a trap that a lot of, of, you know, serialized storytelling has fallen into. And I don't feel that with the Mandalorian. And I think that's just one of the smart parts of, of the way that they've told this show. And like you were saying, John, just the way they're parsing out the information that we get. So, you know, uh, rewatching the season, you know, they are very specifically giving out parts of uh, Din's background, but they're also giving parts of the Mandalorian background. And then they start to bring in a few other characters. So you get like Quill's background and you get um, some of IG-11, you get and you get some of Cara Dune and like it plays out with these characters um, but they are, are very good at, at spending the time wisely in each episode so that it's never overloaded, but it's, I don't, I don't feel like it's ever underloaded either, if that's even a term. <laughs> uh, name to me it's another show in recent, yeah, yeah, name to me another show in recent history uh, that would have the, um, the fortitude to have as little dialogue as it did in the second episode. And rely so much just on visual storytelling. That takes a lot of courage. That is that is that is the producers of a show sitting down and saying they had to know that's a risk. That is that is a terrible risk because people they they like their talkies. You know, silent silent film era went, <laughs> went like by the wayside. Talkies. So yeah. 
<laughs> I think we found the episode name. No. <laughs> um, before we moved to anything else, I did, a quick thing I want to ask you guys about was, um, you know, Star Wars is obviously famous for ships. And so what have you guys thought of the Razor Crest now that we've spent a, you know, a whole season with this brand new ship? That was something I was excited about from the get-go at the panel at Celebration because it really feels reminiscent of the Millennium Falcon in ways for me just because it's so lived in. You know, it looks like the Razor Crest has mm-hmm. been beat up a few times. It's not the newest ship, but it gets him from A to B. And uh, I like that sometimes he even mentions like the cost of fuel or something like that, because it's not something mm-hmm. that we hear a lot in Star Wars. Um, but yeah, I, I love especially too when um, in the panel they were showing scenes about using that technique to get the ship to look as if it's flying around, you know, like we've done before. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a cool looking ship. It it just makes me think of like something maybe a welder would be flying in. I um, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's the first time we've seen a bathroom on screen in a ship in Star Wars. I think you might be right. Um, I, and I think that's pretty awesome <laughs> because it, it lends itself to that that lived in thing. I adore the Razor Crest. I um got as a gift from a friend the uh, little Hot Wheels Razor Crest. And it's uh, it's right up there next to my ghost and shuttle Tiderium, which is a place of honor, in case anybody is wondering. And um, as much as I love the Razor Crest, I also desperately want a model of the Starfighter that the other bounty hunter was flying to try to shoot him down. Um, because I thought that was uh, a terrific uh, ship design as well. So, you know, high ship design marks... Uh, across the board for uh, the mandal and tie fighter with folding wings <laughs> yeah always gonna have a special yeah. place in my heart super cool that's show me something i've seen before but just a little bit different that does a cool thing where i go oh yeah that would make it easier to park <laughs> yeah i'm on board um i, I kind of like to think of the razor crest affectionately as the mando minivan <laughs> kind of what it looks like, you know, and now that yeah. he's got a kid, it just, uh, it really makes sense. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I'm right there with you, John. You know, they've, they've brought back <laughs> some cool, uh, ship designs, obviously, you know, from like the Clone Wars, those gunships that the Magna Guards were in, you know, we saw that mm-hmm. in episode six, uh, along with some really, I mean, the, maybe the coolest, uh, w- you know, uh, squadron of X-Wings and pilots we've ever seen. So, Definitely the coolest pilots outside of Luke. Exactly. True. Really want to fly with those guys. Um, so that would be really fun. Um, you know, Trapper Wolf just looks like he'd be a fun guy to have a beer with. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I'm right. I just, I think they've done a fantastic job. Even even just like in the speeder designs um, that we've seen, like in the very first episode where... Mm. You know, the guy does the whistle and he calls the, the droid run. And he's like, no droids. He's like, but it's the newest model, you know, like mm-hmm. just things like that. Just it's it's just good. So um, the Imperial Remnant has been really interesting to spend some time with. And, you know, we we spent more time with the client by the end of the series. But I don't know about you guys. I did not expect him to be disposable. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. I, I have a friend who hates when uh, people played by name actors or personalities like Werner Herzog are iced uh, in, in a TV show. But what I love about it is it heightens the sense of danger uh, for all the other characters. I believe people can die in this show. And as much as that little part in the back of my brain said when uh, Mandalorian is hurt and, you know, he's convinced he's going to die. As much as I know in my heart, I'm like, it's been greenlit for season two. There's no chance he's going to die because I've seen a very important character die just beforehand. It layers over. Wait, are they are they going to pull a sleight of hand on me? Are they going to do so? Is somebody going to take the helmet? Like what what's going to happen here? And it, it so it introduces that that aspect of um, danger, I think. That is important. And, you know, uh, even Quill uh, getting killed is, I, I think, very important to giving you that sense of uh, real danger and stakes for the characters. Yeah, I have to agree, especially as far as it goes with Quill's death, because I think that you need things like that to give, like you're saying, John, stakes for the characters for and for the audience to care about. You know, I mean, it, up until that point, it was like he hadn't really lost anything. Um, so mm-hmm. to have a character like that, that he's built this relationship with over a couple of episodes now, to then have that kind of ending was rough. Yeah. Yeah. Really rough. Yeah, I think what you're saying, John, makes a lot of sense, you know, because, you know, the client is this character to which we think is um, like, you know, ooh, the big bad. But it reminded me of, you know, in The Empire Strikes Back when we learned that Darth Vader's not really the big bad. Like there's another guy that's even worse, you know. And so right. when they introduce Moff Gideon and he's just willing to kill indiscriminately his own people um he has a vaderishness to him like he just is like he just does not care um about these people and, and apparently in the imperial remnant you know i guess it's easy to hire ex stormtroopers looking for a job and they don't care if they die so <laughs> well uh here's here well uh, you know <laughs> maybe the people they deploy are the, just the ones they don't care about they're they're saving the future <laughs> first order trainers for for other places but uh have both of you watched breaking bad yes i have not yeah so <gasps> oh giancarlo having giancarlo esposito walk out of a tie fighter is just like it's like somebody looked in my dream journal where it was like hmm, i'd wondered what would that would look like how did Who you know john and pick it, for this <laughs> and you're <laughs> yes, like yes exactly <laughs> that guy that giancarlo esposito 100 percent of the time um, but yes, I think uh, Christy will back me up. Matt, you need to see Breaking Bad because if you want to see why uh, Moff Gideon, though terrible and frightening, brings a certain giggle of glee from some who are watching this show, uh, trust me, Gus Fring will explain it all for you. So. Los Pollos Hermanos. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think he's a really cool character. And obviously, I mean, they they... They give him that connection with Din about him having been an ISB agent 
on Mandalore with the Empire at that point. Um, and, of course, the fact that he now has the Darksaber, which how he got that makes me worried for Bo-Katan's life. But as well that it means should. that we might get Bo-Katan in this show in season two. And I would be <laughs> totally excited. I mean, I don't know if I could be more excited. Like, I'm like Chandler here. Could I be right? more excited uh, <laughs> than the fact that Katie Sackoff could possibly be in a live action, uh, you know, show as her character, which I just think would be incredible. Um, but yeah, I think the the thing about this Imperial Remnant, it, it raises so many questions but it also kind of shows us what the the rest of the empire, you know, the the empire that you know didn't escape um, into the unknown regions, you know, to build up as a first order, um, you know, that that didn't end up on Exegol at all, um, you know, these are the guys that are left that they're dealing with, and, and what this actually made me think of is a lot of those EU books where they're dealing with, like, Admiral Dahlia or, you know, things like that, where there are these, these last remnant people uh, from the Empire who are trying to hold on to power somehow. And I'm just fascinated, one, how does he know about this child and what does he truly want with it is really interesting. Um, and it leads me to question, too, all the way back at the beginning... Why were those people holding the child in the first place there? Mm -hmm. Like, had they stolen the child and they were maybe waiting for the Empire to show up? Or what's going on with all this? So it's like, there's still so many questions. Uh, in, in my head, uh, you know, I they can address it or they cannot. I, I don't care. They could be possibly... Um, you know, the, the ones who recaptured or, or took the child and then they just wouldn't deal with, you know, they said to the Empire, we want more money. And the Empire's solution was send all the bounty hunters, every last one of them to go kill all of these people. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, because the thing is, uh, you know, by using the go between the Empire keeps its fingerprints off of this. Right. It's mm, just because yeah. it is just because of the Mandalorian that anybody even knows that they're involved in this. And I think that could even add an, an interesting layer with Moff Gideon for why he's so perturbed is he was trying to do this all under the radar. And now he's had to expose part of himself and what he wants, uh, you know, out there because and once you're out there, word starts traveling and everybody thought Moff Gideon was no Moff Gideon's dead. He was executed for war crimes. Well, no, now he's been seen. Now it's confirmed that he's alive. Or was alive because, you know, I guess they think he's dead after the crash TIE fighter. Otherwise, it would go over and finish him off. But it's kind of a, you know, I just think that it's a um, it's a much more interesting sort of thing because things are set up much less straightforward than um, in a much less straightforward manner than your typical sort of show, you know, even shows that try to set up stuff with intrigue tend to be a little bit too direct at times where you say, Oh, Oh, all right. Well, that's a direct, that's a straight line. Whereas with this, 
you have Imperial versus Imperial over a child that's been kidnapped and recaptured by Bounty Hunter, who's now on the run and has his own people coming after him. And he's trying like it's it's incredibly complex when you sort of like actually map. It's almost like a a season of Twin Peaks in eight episodes where it's like, wait, who knows (laughs) who and what now? Uh, So I'm going to blow both your minds and tell you my theory about this. I I think in my head canon that the reason that Moff Gideon is saying that the Mandalorian has no idea of the plans that they have for this child is because the thing that tied this to the rise of Skywalker was that the child could heal using the force. I wonder if the empire wants to use that capability to have eternal life. Ooh. That anytime Ooh. someone on the Imperial side is dying, they can use the child to heal them and they will just n- all never die. Ooh. And that, ooh, that's an interesting take. Yeah. I, I, I just, like I'm just saying. I do. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. No, I, I like that using the child as a resource to. Because they confirmed he's not a clone. Right. And I, but I wonder. I wonder, wonder, wonder if also we could be going into territory like because uh, uh, Matt and I just read the evil experiment in the old Jedi Apprentice books. Scientifically, they're trying to also measure the child, like see, duplicate it scientifically. Oh, yeah. That's Have the true. child perform yeah. the trick and duplicate it scientifically. And uh, ooh, ooh, ooh! That would be a dark fate for the child, wouldn't it? And Poor baby. Is that'd be it, really dark. Is it just in, like, is it all Imperials, or maybe what is it? If maybe it's Moff Gideon, maybe who just doesn't want to die, and he wants to be the new leader of the Empire forever. You know, it. True. Or or what if they're trying to nurse somebody back from the brink of death? Ooh, like a Palpatine. I don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could go all the way up there, but it could be, yeah. You know, what if they're trying to uh, resuscitate somebody who's on the ver? I mean, heck, at this point, we could even throw Snoke in the mix. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, that's true. I mean, it could be they're anyone. Trying to get- mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. Ah, well, this is great stuff. Um, <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, we could speculate all night. Um, yes, that's but true. We that's should true. probably talk about what I like to, to call frenemies of uh, the Mando, because they're not necessarily all friends all the time. Um, but, uh, one person to which he meets, you know, we talked about, uh, Quill a little bit in the fact that, that he died, but one of the things I loved about his character was just the fact that the Mandalorian could continually go back to him and ask mm-hmm. for help and that he would help. And that there had been this bond forged between them of respect and honor. And I just thought that that was a really neat thing to see especially, you know, for Quill, who is choosing specifically to kind of be in this fight. Um, you know, he has his freedom, so he he chooses to be a part of this fight. And um, I thought that that was a really powerful thing for a character who pretty much, you know, was living on, you know, the, the edge of, of, of Star Wars existence, you know, just trying to live a peaceful life and, and chooses to get back into a fight. Um, I thought that that was really interesting because it, it kind of plays out that theme that, you know, there are things that you just can't let go. You know, good men don't sit by and let evil happen. 
and Quill is is kind of a person that uh, lives that out, and and then of course you know pays the ultimate price then as well, trying to protect the child, which um, I just think is a, is a really strong story, right? Like he, I think what I even took it as is that Quill likes to continue teaching someone things, and that it, he kind of takes on the master like Mandalorian would be his Padawan um, in teaching him that, for example, droids can be reprogrammed that, you know, they, they're not always what they seem or that um, with the Jawas, for example, that they're borrowing, they're not destroying. Um, it, it's <laughs> always some kind of lesson like that. And then, you know, to wrap it up, yeah. I have spoken. <laughs> I, I, what an indelible phrase too <laughs> i have spoken like that it, it's wonderful yeah uh, quill i think is that um al- also that example that we see with uh you know the lars or other characters where there's a a romanticism about the people who are the workers, the you know, the, the ones who use their hands, the ones who farm the land, those are the ones that are the most noble that we meet in Star Wars. They're the ones that are the closest to nature and who they truly are. And even though Quill works with technology, it's all about being a craftsman. And, you know, to your point, Christy, always needing to teach, he salvages an assassin droid and turns it into a beautiful protective thing with, you know, a, a beautiful protective uh, identity with, um, you know, a mothering instinct. And you can see just how that, that touch of nobility from anybody can turn someone's life around. And so he does with the Mandalorian as well in showing him that there are good people out there that you can rely on. And, you know, he, he, everything that Quill touches has to do with seeing again, to your point, you know, Chrissy, they're not destroying, they're borrowing. It's all about how you look at it. Your, your point of view as Obi-Wan might say. Yeah. And I love the way that that all plays into the fact that, you know, IG 11 doesn't stay dead, you know, and the fact that he's brought back, and this very interesting thing of that when you completely and I I don't know if, how this exactly works, but I'm I'm taking it as that if you completely reprogram a droid from, you know, the top down, like that they it's unless you I guess you just had a some kind of programming to put into it, you are going to have to teach it how to do everything. Um you know, there's no base programming left in IG-11. The only thing that he left in him was his self-destruct, um, you know, which is that he could not be captured. Uh, and so I just thought that was really interesting to see that. But I loved your point, John, that what we see then is that through that story of, of like taking the time and the patience to lovingly teach something how to be again you know like um and and the patience that takes and then that is passed on to ig11 who is 
totally different from his experience with Quill. You know, that, that he mm-hmm. is a completely different droid. And even though he doesn't truly live, he's never been alive. He's always just been a thing. Um, that his impact then is massive on, you know, Din Djarin and um, and saving all of their lives um, to the point where, you know, Din is emotional about the fact of losing this character. And so a person that he, what he considers to be a person, right? So much so that he doesn't even want him to see his face because he considers him to be alive, even though he's not alive. You know, just, I, th- I thought it was really, and then to have those two characters, like, to have IG-11 be the the only character that's seen his face in so many years, it's just a powerful moment, um, and I just, I love that we brought that character back to be able to, to you know, bring full circle this story. I agree, and I, I really, really loved that line of dialogue even, Matt, I'm glad you mentioned that, of when... Mando says to IG-11, no living thing can see my face. And he says, I'm no living thing. And you're just like, ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> and it's just, it, it was perfect. And and I love that he gets to reuse the self-destruct sequence rather than for humor to actually save the rest of the group when they're in the river of lava. Um, you know, you don't realize at first that he's going to use it that way. Until suddenly it goes off and you realize he's taken care of the problem. Yeah, you know, I, all I can do is just echo uh, echo you on that, Christy, because I I think that I um, did like a fist pump in the air when he said, I, you know, I'm no living thing because I, it, it was classic Star Wars parsing sort of thing. You know, it, it's just like the point of view s- speech or anything like that, where, you know, it's like, oh, but you said this. Technically, I didn't say it wasn't that, and it's like, ah, you got me again. I should have seen that coming, and it was just, uh, I thought, I thought it was so clever and such a great way to, um, to have the helmet taken off. Because as much as I enjoyed the helmet never coming off, I knew that they had to have that helmet come off at some point. Otherwise, there would be a substantial portion of the audience dissatisfied. <laughs> That it never did, like it. It you know, I mean, it's it's almost a joke. Um, that uh, you know, I I have a a friend Craig who, you know, he's a big comic book fan, and it drove him nuts to no end throughout the, any comic book movie where the heroes keep tell, taking their masks and their helmets off because they don't do that in the comics. And he's like, can't anybody just keep their helmet on just once? Just keep your helmet on. And it's like, this was the time where it's like, I know that he's a huge fan of the show because he's like, yeah, I'll give him a pass on that one scene because they kept the helmet on the rest of the time. That's perfect. No, and it works. I really, you know, we, by the, the first couple episodes, we obviously don't get cartoon and, um, you know, so she shows up and then turns out to be a, a, a very important ally for the Mando. And so what did you end up thinking of, you know, her as a character since, you know, she is kind of one of the main characters in the show along with the Mandalorian. You know, it was interesting in the first episode she appears in, I wasn't as fond of her as I expected I would be. Um, And then I warmed up to her in the next episode and on. 
Um, and I think it was just the directing of that particular one because it just felt like it wasn't her best foot forward. Um, and it really wasn't seeing a lot of Cara Dune in that episode either. Um, so I, I really started to like her a lot more once I saw, um, she and Mando teaming up again. Um, I really like that they used her MMA background, Gina Carano's, because it, it finally became clear why they picked someone like that to play that role. Um, that they wanted her to be this like combat kind of person that would drop down. You know, I love that they call her a dropper in the show. Um, I think that she was really great at showing a soft side in addition to that as well. Um, and I think that it was cool seeing her character arc. I think that she really has a long way to go and I hope maybe they'll keep her and Mando teamed up again in the future. Yeah. I, uh, I've been a fan of Gina Carano's for uh, a number of years for anybody listening who has not seen the Steven Soderbergh movie Haywire. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, she stars in it. Uh, he saw, um, he saw star making material in her before anybody else did, I guess. Um, I, you know, I really like Cardoon. I, she seems like, uh, I, like I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase it, but she reminds me of a lot of, um, friends that I've had, uh, through the years where she has a lot going on behind her eyes and you know that she's choosing what to share with you. And that there's a lot more happening than she's going to let on. So in a sense, you know, she has an armor too. It's just not as obvious as Mando. So it seems natural that the two of them would find a kinship because they operate the same way. It's just she just doesn't put a helmet on about it. And her her armor is just herself and her eyes. And I think that is, um, I think that is something that they really were able to, um, you know, to, to, to just really leverage a natural gift that I think Gina Carano has to play this sort of character. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm a big fan of her. And did you love when, uh, they have him say, uh, oh, they're, they're imps that she's like, I'm in. Yes. That she was hates great. them so much. That was great. Yeah. I mean, I really liked her from the, from the beginning. Um, and I think she just kind of got better uh, throughout each of the episodes that she was in. I, I thought she she added a lot to the show, and, you know, I, I think it's what's nice, um, and one of the things that I was noticing, especially that um, last episode, you know, where she is so adamant about saying, I'm not going to leave you, and like you were saying, John, you get the feeling like there's something behind this, like that maybe... You know, she lost one too many people as a Republic drop trooper. And, you know, that's one of the reasons she left. It wasn't the reason she said earlier. It was, you know, losing so many people. Um, And I I loved the way that she, uh, especially too, when, you know, he shows back up again with IG-11 and, you know, she hands baby Oda off and she's the one who takes the Mando on her shoulders to help him walk. And like, mm-hmm. there's this real connection between these two characters, which I think is really fascinating. And, and part of that too, even goes back to that first episode where she's introduced 
and they're sitting there and they've been on the planet a couple weeks after all of the kerfuffle has gone away, you know, that they helped chase away. And she's talking to the man and she's like, you know, you, you could just take that helmet off and like live a happy life here. You know, you don't have to choose what you're choosing. And, and there's this real interesting almost understanding uh, between these two characters who seem to kind of choose the, the harder way for themselves rather than the easier mm-hmm. way. And what makes her choose the ways that she's choosing or something that I'm really interested in getting behind with her. And so, um, yeah, I think she's been a very interesting character. And, you know, she's turned out to be another great, fascinating female character that's not the same as what we've had before. You know, she's a very different yep. type of female character than we've really ever had in many ways. Um, she you also... Know, even uh... though... Sorry, I had to add. She also likes big guns, and I can sympathize with that. <laughs> she likes big guns, and she cannot lie. Um, so, you know, no, I, I absolutely agree. Like, it's just, I think what makes her interesting is that even though we've gotten, like, kind of, like, really cool BA characters that are female before, hers is very different. You know, she's a bruiser, and she's a fighter before anything else. And that's even different than, you know, characters we've seen like Sabine or Hera or, you know, these these other fighters like she's she's definitely in a different category. And, and so I think that's exciting because um, mm-hmm. it, it just adds to the tapestry of Star Wars. And, you know, I think lastly, you know, Grief Cargo was really interesting for me as a character because, you know, he's that kind of like wishy washy guy like he's kind of out for himself for the most part. But his brush with death seems to have possibly, like, made him choose a side, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of interesting to do with that character. Like, um, But I'm still not quite sure if that he might not turn on you if it was in his own best, best interest. Yeah, I, I wouldn't trust uh, Grief Karga too much, but I do think that... Um... I, I think that Carl Weathers also does a really good job. That, like, the way he was behaving makes so much sense uh especially when you get to his history former imperial magistrate you're like oh no wonder he's such a blowhard he's he's a former bureaucrat he's like you know oh i'm important and i'm going and he puts on this act and um yeah when you see him in that scared moment come on baby do the magic hand thing (laughs) right like when you see that fall away you see that there's there's a, a potential there like maybe this is his first step on a very long journey toward, um, you know, respectability and decency, but he's still, you know, a bounty hunter guild <laughs> member, you know, he still doles out assignments. So you got to imagine that there's, you know, he's not, uh, you know, tearing up the book and saying, everybody's free to go. He's still sending, sending out gang killers to track people down across the galaxy. Yeah, I think that he's going to end up still being someone who's a, a little bit swindly uh, because I, I think that it's too much in his blood at this point. Um, <laughs> case in point, too, my husband and I noticed that uh, it, during one of the final fights, um, he stops to take a drink from the bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While they're being gunned yeah, down, hey. he's like, eh, you might as well. Oh. You got to stay loose. It helps your aim. Okay. It, you, you can't panic. You got to keep your nerves calm. Sure. But I, I stand with Grief Karga. It was Karga. funny. Um, 
Yes. Yeah. I thought even maybe his name was intentional to say he's someone that's going to give you a little grief. And that might be cheesy, but. No, I think you're spot on. I think you're absolutely spot on. With I'm that. glad someone agrees with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I liked him too, is because, you know, we've talked a few times on aggressive negotiations about bounty hunters. Um, and this really helps us get an insight into the bounty hunter guild at this point. You know, he he's our in for that. And he's really fun to, to watch with that. And I think you put it uh, so well when you talked about him being that imperial magistrate. And really, he's used to being somebody who thinks he's more important than he actually is, which is what, you know, all good imperial magistrates were like. I mean, even reminds me of... Um, the uh, the uh, woman who who ran um, Agent Tula, I think was her name, in in uh, Rebels on Lothal before Agent Price comes, you know, mm. um, and you know she just she loves to think of herself more important than she ought, you know, um, because she's not really that good at her job. <laughs> <laughs> just like people keep coming in <laughs> above her to yeah. um, clean up the messes she makes, but yeah, he's he's just a lot of fun, and I think um, Carl Weathers adds a kind of cavalierness to his portrayal that really fits with the character. And so, um, well, uh, we we talked about the music uh, in the the very uh, first episode. We talked about the Mandalorian in where we talked about episodes one and two, and. Honestly, I don't think that that changed much for any of us. I think it only honestly just got better with what Gorenson was doing throughout the series. So I don't think we need to touch on that. But I did want to ask for you guys, you know, eight episodes. We've talked about all these amazing things that have really worked for us. Was there anything about the season or is there maybe an episode where you just felt like this one didn't maybe work as much for you? So I have to say that the one thing that really didn't work for me as well was, um, although the final episode, um, the reckoning, um, I'm sorry, not the reckoning, um, chapter eight, um, redemption. Yes. Thank you. Um, although the redemption had a lot of really great parts, uh, I did feel like at times it felt too expositional in the dialogue to where they did need to go back to more of the visual storytelling rather than having um, Giancarlo Esposito explain it aloud in the dialogue. Um, Mm. I think that it just, it felt too wordy and um, something that you could have just shown me in a different way as a flashback, maybe. Um, And in particular, I mean, when, He's saying how Moff Gideon um, knows each of them. That just went on mm-hmm. too long to me. I could I could understand that that criticism. I um, you know, if I were to offer a criticism of the eighth episode, it's that the biggest thing I have to go along with is that IG Eleven takes Baby Yoda into danger when he's supposed to be protecting him. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things where you know. I understand why it had to happen that way, um, but it was, you know, maybe maybe a little too, I don't know. It was probably the only way to solve the problem of getting them all back together, but, you know. It wasn't natural. As it may. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, for for me, I would have to say, I'm, I'm trying to remember which episode it was in the order. I think it was the f- fifth episode when he went to Tatooine. 
Was that the fifth? Ep- yeah, the fifth episode when he went to Tatooine. I like the episode. I like it a lot, actually. But it's such a uh, such a pivot, you know, between the first and the last arc that it's almost disorienting, and it has, you know, it seems to all exist simply for these two great moments of the dogfight in the beginning and the mysterious boots at the end. And it's one of those things where it's like, it seemed like a long way to go for those two moments, uh, which felt necessary, uh, but almost as if these are, you know, there, there's almost like a um, a prologue and epilogue nature to those moments that could have happened at other episodes as opposed to justifying this this pivot point here. I did enjoy the fact that you got to see Tatooine, that you got to see how things had changed, that you got to see the Tusken Raiders from a different point of view. So again, I like the episode and the fact that he learns an important lesson that you can't just wander off when you have a child sitting in your ship. You know, mm-hmm. like that's a horribly irresponsible thing to do. Um because children don't behave like packages. Uh, but I don't know. It, it's just that's the one where it's it's just such a, a. It's almost like the entire episode itself is just to gear shift from one arc to the other. And I just think that as a result, it could have it could have uh, been written a little bit more smoothly than it was. Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, I that episode is you know, directed and written by Dave Filoni, which I'm a huge Dave Filoni fan, obviously. I think anybody who knows me knows that, if you've seen my Twitter. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I love Dave um, completely. There's there's nothing about Dave I don't like. Um, but this was not the strongest episode of the season. I do feel like, uh, you know, for me, that was probably just the weakest episode of the season for me. And I think what you said, John, is where there are some important things that do happen in the episode, but I think the biggest thing for me um, was that the the actors chosen were not strong enough for the roles. I didn't love the guy playing the bounty hunter that he's working with, and I didn't love the person um, you know that uh, is is running the the docking bay. Um, you know those th- those two just kind of they didn't quite mesh with with the the um i guess the quality of actor that we've been working with so far in the series so and and just that the storyline it just didn't it didn't i i mean all i can say is it just doesn't work well enough for me and part of that is like you said john i feel like you know that end is fantastic like you're like who is this and we're still wondering who that is Mm -hmm. you know when that is going to come into play um but it didn't seem to be quite enough to justify the entire episode. So maybe that will be one of those episodes like, you know, uh, in, in Rebels, which I, I, I'm sure it will be, where in the first season you're like, why are we doing this episode? And then by the end of the season you're like, oh, we're doing that episode because the Purgle are actually going to be the thing that saved the rest of the, 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 right. the whole season, like the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know? So maybe that'll be where that kind of thing comes in, where in two or three seasons we're like, Okay, that makes so much more sense now. I yeah, I, I, you know, and it's I don't I don't think that it's 
it takes anything away from Filoni to say that, you know. Oh, no. You know, I, I, I think any director would be happy to, you know, look at something and I'm sure that they can pick apart their own work better than we could ever hope to. Mm. But, you know, I, like I said, I still enjoy the episode. It's just out of out of the whole arc. It's, you know, it's the only one where I'm kind of like, ah, there are a couple of things maybe didn't work as yeah. well as they'd yeah. hoped they were going to. Sure. So, uh, ratings for you guys for season one of The Mandalorian. Well, I mean, <laughs> I I rate it pretty high. I, I would say um, if we want to go, do we want to go out of five or out of ten for consistency? Let's do ten. Okay. Yeah. Out of ten. So, okay. uh, out of ten, I'm going to give it an, I'm going to say self-destruct sequences. Eight and a half out of ten <laughs> self-destruct sequences. Um, I did mean to say that the thing that worked for me the most out of the entire thing, um, I was thrilled that they brought in members of the 501st Legion to be in the show. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, it, it was funny, they were talking about it during the, the panel at Celebration, um, Dave and Favreau were, but basically that there were there were times that they felt like the 501st Legion member costumes were better representations than some of the actual film costumes. <laughs> and uh, so they were like, you know, why wouldn't we use these guys to, you know, help bolster the numbers in the show? Um, so I, that made me really happy, especially as a member myself. Um, and I, I think that Favreau and Filoni together um, can do no wrong. <laughs> I was so thrilled to see the two of them working together on this um, and that it really revisits those Western and samurai roots that George loved um, that created Star Wars in the first place. So I, I feel like it really didn't have a lot of drawbacks for me at all. I mean, we just mentioned a couple that we each had, but overall, I think that it really has a, a great story direction. I think that it's incredible the new things that it's taught us about Star Wars, even those that have been fans for years and years. Um, and I, I'm really excited, especially to see where it goes with the child or baby Yoda, um, not just for the cuteness. Uh, I, I'm going to go with a solid nine out of 10. I think that any of the flaws that we've pointed at um, that keep it from being a perfect 10 are the same sort of flaws that I expect from any first season of a new show. They're still, they're working it out. They're, they're putting everything up there and they're finding out what, what's working best for them. And so every so often you're going to have a part of an episode where you're kind of like, ah, oh, it was a little clunky or, oh, that dialogue could have been smoother or something like that. Cause there's, you know, this is still a creative endeavor where they're building the history and they're figuring out how they're going to do it. You know, and if I were to rate it on a scale of like other first seasons for shows that I stuck with, I mean, you know, it's a 10 out of 10 on that, that sort of scale, because I mean, you know, you, everybody loves to go back to the first season of uh, Star Trek, the next generation and woo, that, that one was kind of rough, you know? So like if, if I, if I compare it to other series where I was, you know, pretty much ready to go, uh, from the start, um, you know, this is a terrific beginning. Uh, so a solid nine out of 10, I think, is a, a great score for them to come in with. Yeah, I'm right there with you, John. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely nine out of 10 for me. And 
you know, I was thinking of other shows that maybe we've even talked about here, um, and I think the shows that um, really blew me away for the first season were Punisher, season one that we talked about. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, had really blown me away. Um, Daredevil season one had really blown me away. Jessica yeah. Jones. And so, well, not for me. Okay. Season one. Um, Still haven't seen but, it. But it's, but no, see, but when we're talking about shows, it's like there are just so few shows that really nail a, a first season. And, you know, except for what I said, you know, this, I enjoyed the heck out of every single episode of this season. And, and you know what? Just a um, as an aside uh, as well, because we mentioned Breaking Bad before. Breaking Bad is rightly regarded as one of the greatest television series ever created. But if you go back and you watch that first season, you can tell they're they're still not entirely sure of tone, how far they're going to go one way or the other with it, how much comedy they're going to have. And there's a lot going on in that first six episodes where it's like, I really love this, but what the heck was happening? And, you know, and you sort of like going back and forth, but then it all pays off later. So, you know, just just one of those things where yeah, I think first season hiccups are a completely normal thing. Well, I mean, can't wait for season two now. Um, so yeah. got to wait till the fall. Uh, but luckily, Star Wars wise, we've got uh, the return of the Clone Wars at mm-hmm. the end of February, which I cannot wait for. And uh, we will we will talk about that show, but we are going to wait till the very uh, end of that season to talk about it as a whole. So we've got some great stuff coming up here, though, on the 602 Club this year. We're really excited to get into Christy and I. And uh, fun guests like John dropping by. Um, so, John, if uh, people do want to catch up with you, see how things are going, and you know uh, what you've got going on, where can they find you online? Uh, right now, you can find me as Kessel Junkie. Uh, well, right now, you're always able to find me online as Kessel Junkie. Uh, usually hanging out on Twitter, regrettably. And uh, I spend a lot of time on Letterboxd. Uh, every time I watch a movie, I, I offer snippy comments uh, here and there. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting a show with uh, with you, Matt, uh, about Star Wars called Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast. And we... We have a bit of fun over there as well, but uh, and there's one or two top secret things going on, but um, I'm not allowed to talk about those yet. So, if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And in addition to doing the 602 Club here with Matt, I'm also on a couple of other shows. I do one with my friend Teresa Delgado called Sabers and Spells. And that's pretty much all about uh, geeky stuff that she and I want to talk about. Um, we're changing up our format a little bit now to where it's going to be much more laid back conversational and not quite as outlined and scripted. Um, so I hope everyone enjoys that. Um, and it's on the Skywalking Through Neverland network called Skynet. And I'm also on a show called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax network, where once a month I talk with five other women from around the world about Star Wars. And lastly, I do a sec- segment called Fashion in Five on the Star Wars Report once a month about men's and women's Star Wars fashion. So all Star Wars all the time. <laughs> uh, you can find me uh, here on the network. I do a show with Chris Jones. Um, when we get a chance, we do uh, the orb where we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. 
um, over there on the Nerd Party Network uh, next to Aggressive Negotiations. I do Owl Post with Drag Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, talking about films through the lens of faith with my good friend Courtney over on Cinema Stories. But thank you so much for joining us. And may the force be with you. Thank you.